I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I think that the thing that makes this series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, so exciting is that it's like rediscovering the greatness and wonder of the Bible. And it's not a new theology. No, no, it's what's always been there, always been available to us. But it's not like some some teachers, let's be honest, they dig in, they dip into the scriptures and then they, they have to figure out a way to make this Bible passage about your wealth, right? Your physical health, your material wealth, your job, your family, your marriage, your kids. It has to fit in all the spheres of your life. And I can't tell you how many teachers I've heard where no matter what verse they go to, you know it's going to be applied in those like five sectors, like health, wealth, family, job, marriage. You know, it's going to be you know, God's going to use this to bless your health, bless your wealth. You're going to have prosperity. And I'm so tired of this. The Bible's about Jesus. Like, if there's anything that we can, we can every, at least every major section of Scripture, we can bring some application to, it's Jesus. This is what Revelation 19 says. It says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So it excites me to go through Hebrews 11 now, continuing through Hebrews 11, because it's an amazing, inspiring Christ-glorifying hall of types, or hall of foreshadowings of Jesus. I really think, in all honesty, every single thing that's mentioned relates in somehow to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 11, and I'm building the case for that. Last week, we talked about the first 20 verses, or 19 verses, and I'll put a link in the video description for that. And this week, we're picking up in verse 20. Um, so we've already talked about how creation's a type of Christ, how Abel was a type of Christ, how Enoch was a type of Christ, Noah's ark, Abraham, Sarah's pregnancy, Isaac. We've already dealt with all that. Now we're in verse 20, and it says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. How is this a type of Christ? Well, if you look at Isaac's blessing on Jacob, then first thing you have to recognize, right, is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are the patriarchs. These are Abraham, the, 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 the father of the Jewish nation. Isaac, the one through whom his offspring would go. And then, um, then it goes down to Jacob. And Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, from whom the 12 tribes come, from whom all of Israel gets their name, the Israelites. And so we're looking at, here's the patriarchs. And in this passage, it's about um, Isaac invoking future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He's literally, before he dies, it was a tradition, he would put his hands upon his sons and he'd pray for God's blessings, like imparting like a spiritual inheritance to them, as opposed to just a physical inheritance or some kind of a spiritual thing going on there. So he blesses them. In Galatians 3.16, we learn that the blessings, the promises that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately they relate to Jesus Christ. So I've, I've already got a case for typology here, in Galatians 3.16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So already, Paul is giving us, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us the fact that this promise in Abraham relates directly to Jesus. So here we are, we're, we're at the death of Isaac, and as Isaac's dying, he passes on a promise, a blessing that came originally from Abraham. He passes it on to his sons. And it's ultimately about Jesus. We already know that much. So I think we can say already that this verse, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This is already typological based on Galatians 3.16. But let's look at the blessing. So that's in Genesis chapter 27. In Genesis 27, 
We'll just look at verses 27 through 29. This is when he actually places his hands upon them and he blesses them. Genesis 27, 27. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, now remember, this is kind of a controversial section of the scripture here because Jacob and Esau, well, they played a switcheroo. Well, Esau didn't do it on purpose. Jacob is imitating Esau. Uh, but I'm going to put that to the side for now because we're focusing on the promise, not on the whole drama that was going on there. So he smells the smell of his garments and he smells like the field. And so he says, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now, how would I relate this to Jesus? Mike, you're just, you've got to be making stuff up, man. You can't connect this to Jesus. Actually, I think I can. And I think I can do it pretty easily in scripture. The original cursing upon the land itself came from God when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, right? Adam, because of what you've done, the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed. And Isaac looks at his, smells his son, and he says, the smell of a field that God has blessed. And if these promises ultimately connect to Jesus, it's almost as though this is a foreshadowing of the fact that in Adam, the field is cursed, but in Christ, the blessing is brought back. And so we have a new heaven, a new earth ultimately made from Christ. And that is the blessing in there. Now there's, the scripture is actually consistent on this. In Romans 8, we read about how it's not only Adam and Eve that fell, but all of creation was drugged down with them. And how Jesus is not only going to rescue those who come to him in faith, like we're going to be saved, but he's going to fix the earth as well, ultimately recreating it. But Romans 8 verse 19, it says, for the creation waits eager with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation itself is waiting for us to be revealed. This sons of God phrase is, of course, guys and girls. It's not just talking about boys. Um, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That subjected to futility was when Adam ate of the fruit and God cursed the ground on behalf of Adam. Well, the ground will be blessed on behalf of Christ. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And we see the effects of the fall are not only in us, but they're in the world itself with basically how messed up things are. Maybe this is even talking about the weather cycle and things like this, you know, but there's these groanings. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So when we are renewed, restored, then the earth is going to be restored ultimately in Christ. So I, I see a connection in Genesis 27, 27, where he says, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. That ultimately, just as though it was cursed in Adam, so it will be blessed in Christ. And then as he goes on, Isaac speaking, he says in verse 28, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, I think every single phrase in verse 28 and 29 is true of Jesus specifically. So let me just kind of unpack how I see that. Um, the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine will be his. And you might be like, how is this Christ? Well, I think this is speaking about the messianic kingdom of Christ. 
when we read about this in scripture, about how there'll be this incredible plenty when Jesus himself is reigning upon the earth. This is a premillennial view. This is, we believe this millennium is actually coming. And so the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, grain and wine, this is a future thing. But there's more. Peoples will serve you and nations bow down to you. These are, these are his final words ultimately to Jacob, right? Well, when Jacob, I'll, I'll jump forward, when he gives his final words to his sons, he says this in Genesis 49.10. Because remember, the promise is kind of carrying from father to son, father to son. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this, the ancient rabbis would agree this was a messianic passage. This is ultimately not just about Judah. It was about Shiloh, or the ultimate Messiah. Um, in the ESV, they translate it tr- until tribute comes to him. Um, but other translations put that as Shiloh. There's a debate about what it means, but they did agree it was about Messiah. So then there's this peoples being obedient, passed to Jacob and then passed to Judah and ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah, who is the king from the tribe of Judah. So the peoples will be obedient to him. So Israel, it's like they're carrying this messianic promise throughout time and Christ comes and fulfills it, ultimately. So that's the people serving, the nations bowing down. Christ, of course, has, I mean, we're bowing down now. I mean, how many people and how many nations bow down to the glory of Christ and how much that will even increase in the future? He goes on to say that um, uh, Jacob is going to be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, this is passed on then to Joseph where Joseph has dreams. Uh, remember his two dreams? And it's about his brothers bowing down to him and even his mom and dad. And he has these dreams and ultimately we see him as a type of Christ and we see this as a, Chris, a, a Christ-centered promise. So how does this relate to Jesus? Well, in a couple ways. There are two brothers of Jesus we read about in the Bible who actually wrote books in our New Testament. Did you know that? James and Jude. James 1.1 and Jude 1. I I say Jude 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, so we don't say Jude 1.1. You can. It's just redundant. There's only one chapter. So Jude verse 1 and James 1.1, both of them start their their epistles the same way. They don't go, hey, it's me. I'm, I'm the brother. They say, I'm the servant of the Lord Jesus. His mother's sons bowed down to him. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? His mother's sons bowed down to him. But of course, ultimately we see not only is it fulfilled just specifically James and Jude, but we, we see Christ at every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. The highest possible fulfillment is of course in Jesus, in Jesus to whom everyone will bow down. Then it says this, cursed, I love this, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, many times we think about this as being the Israel promise, you know, to Abraham, to his sons, to ultimately the nation of Israel, bless them and God will bless you, curse them, God will curse you. And I think there's a truth in that. But all the promises were ultimately in Christ, right? And isn't Jesus, he the dividing line between whether you will be blessed by God or cursed by God? It's how you treat Jesus. So blessed be those who bless you, cursed those who curse you. That's the ultimate, like, fulfillment, fulfillment of this. It's true that later, think about this too, there's a, there's a relation to the law. We, we see the law as being somehow um, inferior to Christ as he fulfills the law and does it so much better. But in the law, when Moses gives the law, he has this moment where he, he tells the people to sit separate into two groups and sit on either side of a mountain. 
And then he has the rest of the people go through the, the pathway between the two, the valley between the two mountains. And on one side of the mountain, they call out the blessings of obeying the law. And on the other side of the mountain, they call out the curses if they disobey the law. So blessed, cursed, blessed if you do this, cursed if you do that. And of course, they all failed. So they're all, all are under the curse of the law. As many as sin are under the curse of the law, Galatians tells us. So we have this, this later thing where the, the blessing and cursing seems to come through the law. Ah, but there was a previous promise that supersedes it, right? Blessed be him who blesses you. Cursed be him who curses you. So we focus it on Jesus. If I'm going to do it performance-wise, I'm under a curse. But if, I'm, if my life is so ultimately about blessing Christ, about knowing Christ, then I get to receive that blessing. So that's kind of interesting. It's, it's in the same sense that Abraham, before the law of, of works was given, Abraham was justified by faith. He just believed and was accounted to him as righteousness. And 400 plus years later, the law shows up. Well, it can't undo that whole faith, get, get righteous by faith thing. So the law comes later and it says, cursed if you disobey, blessed if you obey. Well, that can't undo this whole cursed and blessed based upon how you treat him. And who's the ultimate him of the promise? Jesus. So I'm just like, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's just the, the marrying of scripture together. Ephesians 6.24 says this, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with, an, with love incorruptible and reckless. I'm just kidding. It doesn't. It doesn't say that. Um, <laughs> that's the passion translation. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So it's how you treat Jesus. You're blessed or cursed depending on how you treat Jesus. In John three eighteen, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. So the blessing and curses fall down depending on how I treat Jesus. And now that may be a new way of understanding when God says to Abraham, blessed are those who bless you, cursed are those who curse you. It's true of Abraham. It's true of the people of Israel. And it's most true in the most fullest sense of Jesus, who was the ultimate object of the promise, of all those promises. Verse 21. That's just one verse, so let's keep going. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So we, we talked about Isaac, and we read about how he blessed Jacob. Now we're going to read about how Jacob blesses his sons. Um, now, that's, this happens in Genesis 48. Genesis chapter 48. And um, in Genesis 48, he starts before blessing them by recounting some of his life story. And I think it's interesting because Hebrews has brought this issue up. So let's look at it. Genesis 48.3. It says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he, before bringing a blessing to his sons, he reminds them of the blessing God gave him. So he's kind of passing it forward, right? Um, but this is the Jacob's ladder event that he's referring to. So in blessing his sons, the first thing he does is he brings up a type of Christ, where he sees the ladder and the angels of God going up and down, descending upon the ladder. And Jesus, in the Gospels, he relates the ladder to himself. He says, you will see them descending upon me that I am the access point between heaven and earth. So already we have a type in that. But in Genesis 48, verse 15 and 16, we read about the actual blessing that he gives. It says, And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Now this is a passage we went over 
several weeks ago. I don't know. It was like a year ago, something like that. It feels like um, it was several weeks ago. And this is one of those sort of like deity of Christ passages because it's the angel of the Lord who he talks about. But look at the terminology. He goes, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. That's the same being, right? Then he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Well, grammatically, that's the same being. The angel is, is, is the God. Well, it was the angel of the Lord who he met. And so the angel of the Lord is, of course, God and Jesus. Yeah. So that's verse 21. Let's look at verse 22. As we continue our typological examination of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, now we're just talking about people dying mostly in Hebrews 11 at this point, right? So now at the end of his life, <laughs> made mention of the Exodus and of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones, concerning his bones. This we read about in Genesis chapter 50 at the end of the book. Um, unless you have the Joseph Smith version where he added several verses at the end of Genesis so he could have prophecy about himself. But in Genesis 50 verse 24, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear or promise, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, typical Egyptian custom, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So he dies in hope. The idea here is that he died in hope that God would fulfill his promise and that his, his bones were to be carried into the promised land. Now, later in Judaism, the treatment of the bones was all about the resurrection. Like the direction in which they were buried, where the location, this is why the, the prime burial ground would be right there in front of the east gate of Jerusalem in that cemetery that's right there that you can Google images of it. Because it's like, hey, at the resurrection, boom, we're going to come alive right there. We'll be right there. And so, um, so he dies in hope. In Joseph's case, though, Interestingly, we already talked about how he's a type of Christ in so many ways. We did a whole thing on that. He dies outside the promised land in Egypt, but he's looking forward to the promise. And he too is literally going to be raised in that new life, in that new promise. And he, in a sense, dies outside of the promise for the sake of those who will one day go in. Because that was why he got carried away from his brothers, why he got delivered into Egypt, that he might deliver them. So I see that as a as a a very simple type or foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Verse 23. By faith, Moses. Now we, we dug way deep into Moses already, so I'm going to do this a little less detail because we've already covered a lot of this material. But it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So there's tons of stuff about Moses, but the, the couple things that are mentioned in Hebrews that relate to him is, first off, he was hidden and, you know, being attacked by the king, the edict to kill these Jewish babies, and he was hidden and saved from that. And Jesus, same scenario, right? Except now it's King Herod, and he's killing the the the. Bethlehemian children, if that's the right term, you know, the ones that are in the area of Bethlehem. Um, and we read about that Matthew 2, verse 16. Um, also, the second thing then is that he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh. He left his place in Pharaoh's household. Being in Pharaoh's household, even being an adopted kid, um, was kind of a big deal. 
you know he was kind of a big deal and he he was getting the royal treatment and so he decides to leave that he abandons any authority he has any rank he has and any identification he has with the royal house moses abandons this when he decides to identify with the jewish people and then ends up being kicked out of egypt basically exiled um Jesus did something very similar. And just like Moses, you know, he didn't have to. Moses could have just been like, you guys are on your own. Like, I'm sitting pretty. I'm in the royal house. Like, God must like me. <laughs> he doesn't like you. But just like that, Jesus didn't have to come and save us, but he condescended or brought himself down low, Philippians 2, that passage we keep bringing up, um, where he brings, makes himself a servant. He gives up heaven to come and be with us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, um, In the last days that God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we talk about his glory. Jesus already had the glory before he ever came down. Unlike in, say, LDS teaching, Mormon theology, Christ, he didn't have all that glory before he came down. He literally came down, lived a perfect life, and then died, and then got glorified, and was better off afterwards than he was at first. Christ, no, no, he just, he just gave up so that he could gain us. So he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, you can't get much more glory than that. But then in Hebrews 2.9, we read this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The phrasing is really interesting there, right? Jesus tastes death. The day you eat of it, you shall die. The day they tasted of the fruit. And Jesus, he tasted of the death for us. Um, so that Adam-Jesus thing, which is not what I'm talking about. Sidetrack, sorry. Um, anyhow, just as Moses left Pharaoh's household voluntarily being identified with, with slaves and being identified with, with the, the chattel, Right? So Christ comes and is identified with us, the lowly, the lowly. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And this is where, as I've mentioned before, I think this is where Hebrews specifically calls it out. Like this is obviously a type of Christ because it calls what Moses did the reproach of Christ. By identifying with the Jewish people and leaving Pharaoh's household, now he's got the reproach of Christ. And since the Jewish people are the ones who God is bringing Messiah through, it really is the reproach of Christ. So he considers the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So um, Moses knew about God's future plans for Israel and God's promises for them, which are ultimately about Messiah. And he considered that was better than whatever wealth he had in Egypt. So he leaves it. Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. There was something greater coming in the future that that was what he was looking forward to. And that's consistent in Hebrews 11. All these people are keep look, they keep anticipating something better. They're giving up something on this earth for something eternal. And so Jesus, of course, um, he came down to rescue us. You can listen to Jesus' parables in Luke 15 where he talks about the lost coin, woman who lost a coin, searched everywhere to find it again. The, the lost sheep, the man, he leaves the 99 to go find the one, right? Or... Then finally, the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son who left his father. And when he came home, there was this great rejoicing. And I think that the, the parallel, people are like, what is it that's lost that's being found? Well, it's those who are lost. 
I came to seek and save the lost. And so God's rejoicing in coming to save us. We're, in a sense, we are the joy set before him. Wow. That's pretty special. Isaiah 53, 11, it says um, about Jesus relating to um, looking to the reward. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so there's this, yeah, he came to save. In case you didn't know that, Jesus came to save. Verse 27, uh, by faith, again, Moses, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's invisible. There's two elements here. One, he's not afraid of the anger of the king. And two, he's like, he's, it's as though he is seeing God as seeing him who's invisible. So let's talk about those. First, the anger of the king. Um, in, in my mind, this may relate to literally the anger of the king, like God's wrath. Jesus took upon himself our sin. And we, we read about Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating great drops of blood, right? Now, some people go, it was just a miraculous thing only Jesus could do. Actually, this is something called hematidrosis, which I probably pronounced wrong. Hematidrosis, maybe? Probably hema, something like that. But this is, you can actually, you can Google it. This, the idea is that you, you're under such great strain that literally your blood vessels are bursting and blood is coming out of your pores, not just sweat. So sweating great drops of blood, though some have mocked the Bible like, that doesn't happen. This is, um, this is, this is proof that they were just making stuff up to make Jesus look like more of a martyr. And lo and behold, yeah, it happens. You know, it happens. Supposedly when people are uh, dealing with PTSD issues or on their way to, to, to uh, face the death penalty the night before, they're struggling and unable to sleep. That's the kind of stuff that happens. But do you really think it was just the pain of death? Because I think it had to do with the shame of sin. In fact, that's what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 is that he despised the shame the shame of it. He put our sins upon himself. He, he who knew no sin became sin. And to me, that might be related to this anger of the king thing. Very sober thought. To consider not just the physical side of the cross, which is pretty hardcore when you think about it, but to consider the spiritual side of the shame and the darkness of sin. My sin, the things I've done wrong that have stained my soul being put upon him. Um, I can't imagine what that's like because it wasn't just all of my sins. It was all sin. It says also that Moses uh, endured as seeing him who's invisible. And I think he saw God in a limited sense. We read read about this in Exodus uh, where God says, um, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God gives him like a partial revelation, a vision of God, but it's partial. It's somehow limited. But Christ, we read about in the New Testament, how he's truly seen the Father in all ways. And so, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Another deity of Christ's passage, but also just saying, Christ, yeah, the full revelation of who God is, is being revealed to us in Christ. No one knows the Father like the Son. So this is the escalation side of typology, right? Christ is... And escalated, not just like Moses, but way beyond, way beyond. Everything Moses did was lesser. Christ's fulfillment of it is greater. Verse 28. This is exciting. The Passover. 
Okay, so by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And is the Passover typologically about Jesus? Yes, like there cannot be debate on this issue if you believe the Bible, right? So I'm going to give you, if, if I counted right, 14 points. Yeah, 14 points. 14 points. I don't have enough fingers to even... 14 points where the Passover relates to Jesus. So this is just rapid fire. You could read about it in Exodus 12 and in other passages in Numbers as well. <laughs> I'm going to have to pass over some of the context, but I'll stick to... yeah. Okay, so, number one, the Passover was a lamb, right? When Christ came, he is compared to the, in fact, it's the, the announcement of John the Baptist, the forerunner for Christ. He says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Again, escalation, because no lamb in any Old Testament sacrifice took away the sin of the world. Christ is the fulfillment of it all. He does it all. So he's a lamb. Um, number two, it had to be a male lamb. It had to be a male lamb. Girls, this is not prejudice against you. If you think, <laughs> and if you think it is, you may be slightly oversensitive. Um, uh, but so it's, it's a male as Jesus was. Now, why is this significant? Because in the Bible, all of humanity is ultimately represented by who? Adam. Because Adam was made first. Eve was made from Adam. Adam represents both of them. Right? Then all of us come from Adam and Eve. This is, it seems, more of the, the onus is on Adam responsibility for eating of the, tr- of the fruit. There's debates on what would it be like if Eve ate and Adam didn't eat. And my answer is, I have no idea. Don't look at me like I would know the answer to that question. But um, <laughs> go ahead and debate it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's ultimately Adam. In Adam all die. In Christ, we are made alive. So... It had to be a male. I think the, the male is there intentionally to be typological of how Christ would represent all of us as Adam represented all of us. Number three, the lamb had to be without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish. It couldn't have anything wrong with it. If it had like like some weird mole growing off of it, you know, like most of us do. You know, like if it had something like that, no, no, can't be, it can't be it can't be used. It had a broken leg, nope. Nothing can be wrong with the lamb. It's gotta be as perfect as you can get. Well, you're not going to get a morally pure lamb, but you can get a ceremonially pure lamb to represent the fact that Jesus is sinless. So Christ is without spot or blemish. Number four, it was in substitute of their firstborn. That was the whole idea of the Passover. The angel is going to pass over, and if this lamb has been sacrificed properly, then nothing will happen. If not, your firstborn will be struck. Why the firstborn? Well, in some sense, you could say, oh, it's about Pharaoh, and it's about, he was, he was worshipped, his firstborn's worshipped. There's all this deification of these characters, of these people, and God's judging that. He's showing himself true and real, and these other gods false. But, ultimately, Christ, the only begotten of God. And so, it ultimately relates to him. Just like the binding of Isaac. God makes your only son Isaac. He calls him his only son when, when, when Abraham's got another son. Why? To, to, to draw the, how it represents Jesus Christ. Just like the Levites were considered separated unto the Lord, and he calls them like Israel's firstborn. They're, the, they're in replacement of the firstborn. It's, I'll take the Levites. And then the Levites stand there, and they offer on behalf of the people to God to make intercession. And so this, the concept of firstborn is actually really consistent um, in, uh, in the scriptures. Number five, you had to take this lamb into your house and keep it with you. 
it's really interesting because you couldn't just take the lamb and sacrifice it. No, you had to take it several days ahead of time and you had to receive it and keep it with you for a few days. That was just part of the thing. Now, some people say maybe this was so the family would feel the pain of sacrificing this animal because the little kids were like, oh, it's Sweet Tooth, the, 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 the lamb. You know, we, we found a goat when I was a kid and named it Sweet Tooth and then ate it. I'm just kidding. We didn't eat it. It was on Catalina Island. We just said, bye, Sweet Tooth, and we left. So somebody else ate it probably. Um, side note. But the idea of keeping him in the house, there, there had to be a reception. This, this lamb had to be received by the people, you know, to themselves in a very special and different way. And so Christ must be received. Um, he must be embraced. And number six, they had to clear the leaven out of their homes. And they had to have this whole meal that they would have. When they killed the lamb and ate it, they had to eat it with no leaven in any of the meal. That was very important. Leaven represents pride or sin, generally speaking. And so sinless. Christ is sinless. Number seven, you could not break its bones. This lamb, you can't break its bones for any purpose. Not because you want to eat the marrow. No, no. This is a symbolic meal. It's very symbolic. It's not even a fun meal. I did a Passover service one time with our youth ministry where we actually ate what they really ate at the original Passover, bitter herbs and all that. Not, not like the, the new traditional Jewish Passover where they add 500 extra things that aren't in the Bible. We just did the biblical one. Everybody was like, That's, this is a gross meal. And I was like, yeah, well, it's symbolic. It's meant to teach a lesson, not be super yummy. We'll go to McDonald's later. <clears throat> but one of the things is you, you can't break the bones of the, of the animal and Christ, his bones were unbroken. On the cross, they went to break the bones to, to kill them more quickly and Jesus was already dead. His bones remained unbroken. And the, the Bible relates this to that. Uh, number eight, the animal had to be slain. Right? You, you, couldn't just, you couldn't just use a little bit of blood. Right? Like, I'll just say, that's all I needed. Oh, you're good. Go, ahead, go away, lamb. You're fine. But the, the animal had to die because the blood represents its life. It must be killed. And so Christ had to die for us. Number nine, the blood of the lamb was placed on the door. The blood of the lamb was placed on the door of the home. Now, some people say that this is representing the cross. And maybe it is. What they would do is they would take a branch of hyssop, this plant, and they would dip it in the blood of the lamb. Then they would go to their door and they had to put it on the doorposts and lintel. And everyone's like, lintel, isn't that a bean? No, the, the, that's the top of the door, right? And then the sides of the door. So they would go whack, whack, whack. Now, they just had to touch it to them. They didn't have to paint the whole door. It just says touch it to them. So they touched it to them. And those are like the three points of the cross where Christ is bleeding here, here, and here. And then you're like, well, his feet were bleeding too. Well, I guess if it dripped from the bottom, from the top to the ground, then it would actually be in the shape of a cross. And that may well be the case. I'm sure some of the houses probably did look that way. They had like a, a cross of blood across their doorway. Um, so the blood's placed on the door and it's placed with hyssop in particular. Hyssop's an interesting thing. It's always used in the Levitical law for cleansing purposes and for like ceremonial spiritual cleansing purposes. And so... Um, the uh, cleansing of leprosy or the whole concept of the red heifer. I'm sorry, I won't get into the whole red heifer thing tonight. It's just too much to talk about. But basically, they would make this, this concoction of stuff they would use for their ceremonial cleansing. And they'd, they'd burn hyssop, put in it, and then they'd apply it with hyssop as well. So hyssop's like a, related to cleansing, which is why in Psalm 51.7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. But then later in Psalm 51, verse 16, he's like, I'm not going to offer you a sacrifice. So he's like, God, you offer the sacrifice. You purge me with hyssop. I have no sacrifice to give you. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So there's, a, there's another idea there. Number 10. Oh, excuse me. Let me say this. The blood placed on the door. So judgment was coming to the entire house. 
but the blood of the Passover lamb had to be applied to the people or they would not be saved from this judgment. Same as the, Christ, the blood of Christ must be applied to your life. Number 10, the, the blood, uh, oh, that's number 10, actually. The blood applied is what saved them. It was specifically, they had to apply the blood. So Exodus 20, or 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So it had to be applied to them. They'd see the, he'd see the blood, you're saved. And so we have been washed by the blood of the lamb, so we are saved from judgment to come. In number 11, I can't, I don't have a, f- a finger. In number 11, the Passover lamb had to be eaten, not only sacrificed, but it had to be consumed, and everybody in the home had to eat it separately. Not like in different rooms, but each person, each individual had to eat of the lamb. This was very important. Exodus 12.4 talks about this. In John 6.51, Jesus says this, and remember that Passover, they all had to eat it. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At Passover, he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat it. Eat it. Now, this is, of course, there's a whole debate in Catholicism about this being the Eucharist and all that. And I have videos on that. Look them up. This is not the day for that, but, but this is obviously symbolic and representative, representative of us consuming Christ and his sacrifice. So each person has to do it. Maybe your family loves the Lord, but have you made a commitment to Christ? Have you embraced Jesus Christ? Have you repented and believed in him? So the escalation of this is with Jesus. The Passover is just them leaving Egypt and the destroyer of the firstborn, right? But with Jesus, it's about entering eternal life. And it's about passing through judgment to come. It's much greater. Number 12, how the Passover was cooked. This too is symbolic. They were specifically told in Exodus, you cannot boil it and you cannot eat it raw. No kibbe. For those who know Lebanese food. So my family eats kibbe. So um, yes, no kibbe and no uh, boiling, none of that. You have to roast it in fire and you have to roast the whole lamb. You can't cut it up and roast it in pieces. You have to cook the whole thing in fire all whole, head, legs, and inner parts all included. Fire, I believe, represents judgment, represents God's judgment, or even could represent death. How interesting. The whole thing has to be there, burning. Like, you, you know how animals stop looking like animals once the butcher drops them up for you? And then you're like, see, it's like I'm not responsible because it just looks like meat now. <laughs> but here you had to see it and be like, oh, this is really happening, you know. You had to, in a sense, experience the judgment that was coming upon this thing in your place is the idea. Judgment. It's experiencing judgment. Not just death, but judgment. This is, um, this is important. And that was how it was cooked. It also had to be served with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Those two things. I already talked about how leaven represents sin. So they ate unleavened bread with it. But the bitter herbs was to represent the bitterness of their slavery. And you had to eat this thing with the bitterness of herbs. And I think this represents to us what is the real slavery Christ delivers us from. Sin, the bitterness of our sin. When you come to repentance, you no longer look at sin like it's that thing that you pat yourself on the back. Oh, sowing my oats. You're bitter. You're like, Lord, I'm repentant. That sin was bitter. That was bondage to sin. The things I've done in the past, those are things I'm, I'm ashamed of in Christ. I come to you, Lord. And so there's a sense of bitterness that we go through that's healthy. Number 13, how they ate it. How they ate it. And I already talked about how they served it, but how they ate it was different. In Exodus 12, 11, In this manner you shall eat it, 
with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Because it was like, you're going to eat it, and then boom, you're out of here. That's the idea. You're eating it, and then you're out of Egypt really quickly. In 1 Corinthians eleven 26, we're told this about our communion. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every communion service should probably have some mentioning of the fact that Christ will return and that we are eating this communion, you know, we are partaking of what Christ has done for us. We're doing this in expectation of his return. I got my belt on. I got my sandals on. I got my staff in my hand. I'm ready to go, Lord. I do this knowing that this, this future kingdom of Christ is on its way, and that's what I'm ultimately part of. So I'm a pilgrim passing through is the idea. So they had to eat it in haste. I'm, I'm partaking of this, already committed that this, this place I'm living isn't my real home. There's a future one I'm waiting on, and that's how we partake of our communion as well. And number 14, the last one, none of this lamb was allowed to remain until morning. None of it could remain till morning, just as Jesus would not remain on the cross. Because you can't save leftovers here. You need to partake of it, and that's it. In John 19.31, it says, Since it was the day of, the, of preparation, after Christ had been uh, crucified, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So we have this request. Can we, can we hurry this up? We don't want Jesus to remain until tomorrow. That was the actual request. And so he was then buried and, and placed aside. All right, let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The Red, the Red Sea corresponds to Jesus in, in probably several different ways. Uh, in fact, uh, Gloriana, you'd mentioned f- several weeks ago some specific ones, so you can add, at the end of this, you can add on if there's something I missed. Um, so 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, it says this, and it... it, it creates a typological connection between Jesus and the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10.1 For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Baptized. And it connects baptism to the Red Sea, which baptism is all, symbolically all about Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus. Man, I die with Christ, I raise with Christ. And so here they are. They go through the Red Sea. It's connected to baptism. Uh, Romans 6 talks about this, how baptism connects to Jesus. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so here they go, out of slavery, they pass through the Red Sea, and then they come out into ultimately a new life. That Red Sea closed down around their enemies, And now they're free. Now they're free. So baptized into Moses. Moses leads them. Moses parts the Red Sea. The Red Sea is related to baptism. Moses is related to Jesus. The Red Sea is like weak sauce compared to what Jesus does for us. But again, it's escalation. It gets bigger with Jesus. That's the idea. What Christ does is better. And it specifically said through, through death. We've gone through death into Christ. Well, Exodus 14, 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, says this about um, the, uh, the experience of the Red Sea crossing. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, 
which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. You only have to be silent. Words, I, I just, I want to get a shirt that says that for people, for completely carnal reasons. I just want them all. Um, but the idea is, like, right at the Red Sea crossing, there they are. And Moses tells them, like, you're not going to do this. God's going to work. You're going to stand still. You're going to see the salvation that God brings to you. How much do these words take on more meaning when you realize that this is a picture of Jesus and us identifying with him. Oh, Lord, I need to be saved. Oh, I'm doomed. Judgment's coming upon me. My sins, the burdens of my guilt. I'm going to stand before you. And he goes, ah, stand still and watch. I will work your salvation for you. You just have to stand still. And then he saves us. He delivers us, and we go through into Christ. So in Christ, we pass through death unharmed. But those who reject Christ and try to pass through will be drowned, just like those Egyptians. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Jericho. I mean, this is another example, Jericho ultimately, of God delivering his people without their abilities being involved. You're going to walk around a city, okay? He knocks the walls down. He takes care of it. And it's there at the entrance to the promised land that they're reminded again that God is the strength behind all the things that that are happening for us. So Jesus would do the work for us, and we simply believe, we trust. Verse 31, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. And I have to admit, when I got to Rahab, I thought, how is Rahab a type of Christ? (laughs) And I don't think she is, actually. She's not a type. But in her story, there's something there. Because here's the Israelites heading into the promised land, and before they get to inherit their promise, they rescue a Gentile. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because here before the Israelites, the Jewish people receive that great revival from God, yet God is rescuing the Jewish people. I mean, the the Gentiles, many of the Gentiles from the future destruction that is coming. And so it was a rescue mission for a Gentile. That spy mission was a rescue mission for a Gentile who later became in the line of Messiah. We read about the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is there. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel, the prophets. And time would also fail me if I tried to unpack all those right now. So I'm going to move forward. Um, I am considering in one of these Sunday night services where we're doing Jesus in the Old Testament of doing a survey through the book of Judges, uh, the typology of the book of Judges. Because I thought that'd be kind of cool to just do it in like a one shot thing. That'd be pretty neat. So yeah, I'll probably do that. Um, in verse 33, let's keep going. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I think every one of those relates to Jesus in the following ways. By faith, they conquered kingdoms. Jesus, of course, conquered a kingdom. In fact, he says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ultimately, he's conquering a kingdom. Jesus' second coming, he's going to be that rock in Daniel, Daniel 2, the dream where the rock comes and destroys the kings of the world and grows and, and becomes the kingdom that fills the earth. This is Christ conquering kingdoms. By faith, they enforced justice. That's the second one in verse 33. Enforced justice. Jesus took the sentence of justice upon himself enforced it in a way that saves us. Um, 
Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Talk about justice. The curse of the law is upon you. The curse was a death penalty, by the way. The curse of the law. That was the curse. Everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. That's the death penalty. You're hanging because you're cursed because you got the death penalty. It was the capital punishment. Christ became that for us. All judgment was committed to the Son, Jesus says. And he goes and he goes, and I'm not condemning anybody. He didn't mean ever. He says, in my first coming, all of you are condemned, and I will go to judgment for you. You reject him and you stand, you stand alone. So he enforced justice. He also obtained promises. I mean, Jesus not only accomplished all that was promised, the ultimate promises of God, right? But he also obtained them for us. Like, he's like, now, because of what I've done, you get all these promises. I've obtained them for you. Second uh, Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He brings them to us. Stop the mouths of lions. Now you might think, oh, that's Daniel. You know, and there may be a couple other characters as well. Uh, Samson, you know, he fought a lion. Of course, Daniel probably, he stopped the mouths of lions. You know, they didn't even eat him, right? David. David. Oh, I said, no, Daniel. Okay, oh, David also killed a lion. He talks about with his sling, yeah. Okay. I thought I got my name. I hate when I get names mixed up because it's always like an hour later. Someone's like, you know, you, you kept saying the devil when you meant God. And I was like, no. <laughs> it's like I have nightmares about that. Um, but in 1 Peter 5.8, we read that the lion is related to Satan, right? Be sober and be, and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Did Jesus stop his mouth? both in his ability to destroy us and in his accusational tongue, the accuser of the brethren. In Christ, both those things are stopped, so he stops the mouths of lions. Quench the power of fire. Do you think that might relate to Jesus a little bit? Quench the power of fire. We, we can see this in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're in the fiery furnace, and that fourth man who may well be a Christophany. But then we see the fulfillment of this in Jesus who actually rescues us from the wrath to come. He quenches the power of fire. He escapes the edge of the sword. Well, he escaped it in a, in, a, in a way. Psalm 22 talks about, and I'll read verse 22. It says, deliver my soul from the sword. Psalm 22 is that messianic psalm. And in verse 21, he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then says, you have rescued me. So yeah, he was delivered, but it was after being pierced that he was delivered. It wasn't without it. So escape the edge of the sword was made strong out of weakness. And I think this is interesting because Christ came down as a weak human being but was made strong in that, right? There was a type of strength he had in dependency upon the Father, being an example for us, um, so made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. Um, well, if we realize we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, then Christ became very mighty in war, in the spiritual battle that he fought for us and he won for us. And of course, in his second coming, he'll be mighty in a different kind of war. And then um, he put foreign armies to flight. And I can think, of course, the, the armies of the enemy fleeing from Jesus, but I can also specifically think of when Christ cast the demons out of that demoniac we read about in the Bible, and they said, can we go into those pigs? And they just took off running, putting foreign armies to flight. In fact, they, they called themselves legion, which was a military way of saying how many there were. So foreign armies to flight. Kind of interesting that all that can, I think, fairly easily relate to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 35 of Hebrews 11, women received back their dead by resurrection. This could be about Elijah and the widow. 
receiving back their dead by resurrection. But there's another connection to Jesus, which is that the women were the very first witnesses of his resurrection. Women received back their dead by resurrection. It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. If you can't see how that's about Jesus, or how that, I should say, relates to Jesus, right? Was tortured, refusing to accept release. Jesus says, don't you think I can't appeal to my Father in heaven and call down a bunch of angels right now? He could have just snapped his fingers and ended the whole thing. Refused to accept release. Why? So he might rise to a better life. The better being we're saved. Our salvation being better. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, all of which actually Jesus underwent. He was mocked, he was flogged, he was bound, and he was imprisoned. Um, he had that whole trial overnight and all, that, all those experiences connected to Jesus as well. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The one common theme here is they were killed. Stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. Those are all ways of dying. They were killed, but maybe there's a metaphor here in the fact that they went around in um, skins of sheep and goats. Christ came and he's the lamb. He is that sacrificial lamb. They went around in skins. He came and he was the sacrificial lamb for us. Uh, Destitute, afflicted, mistreated. He became poor for us. He was mistreated, rejected by his people. Of course, that connects. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. And this has never been more true of anyone than it is of Jesus Christ of whom the world was not worthy. On a side note, some say, on the cross, I see how much I'm worth. And that might be a reckless way of saying things. Um, like I've, I've, heard, I've heard pastors say this. The cross shows me how much, I'm, how much I'm worth. But if the world's not worthy of those prophets and people who went before, how could we be worthy of Jesus? I'm not worthy. It doesn't show how much I'm worth. It shows, it shows how much I cost. That's the difference. That's how much God paid for me. But it wasn't my innate value that sent him to the cross. It was his love. And so it shows me his incredible love. He wasn't just making a wise investment. Right? He was saving those he loved. Verse 38 continues, this wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They had no homeland. In other words, Jesus said, uh, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 39, and all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And that, uh, verse 39 and 40, kind of concludes by saying, all of their lives were looking forward to something greater that was fulfilled by Jesus. So this kind of, to me, it's a, I'll be honest, it's a slant way of kind of leaning towards typology and foreshadowing in Hebrews 11. It concludes by showing that they were all just in anticipation of Christ. And that's kind of my point as well. Um, so, this has been my um, analysis of Hebrews 11 in a typological sense. You are free to agree or disagree with me on these different points. I think there's too much here to be ignored. And I think the connections aren't fabricated. I think that they're actually just there in Scripture to be discovered. And I present it to you, hopefully for you to consider and, and hopefully be excited about. Um, maybe this puts new meaning into Hebrews 12 when it declares that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. When it gives this big list of all these examples. That not only we're looking forward to Christ, but were themselves part of the tapestry that was painting, or, or I should say, uh, weaving the truth of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. I mean, 
We write books and use the stories as metaphors for truths. God does this with lives, with humans, with their actual histories, you know, and then embeds it throughout the scriptures so that the veil can one day come off and we can see Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word and for the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the spirit of prophecy. We pray, Lord, that you just continue to give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to not just look into the text of Scripture um, for selfish reasons, um, but to look there for the glory of Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We're in awe of your sovereignty and your power your wisdom, and we just bow our lives to you. Lord Jesus, we want our lives to um, weave some truth of Christ to this world. We pray that you'd use us, that you'd use the things that we're going through, even the hardships we have and the struggles we face to bring out the glory of Jesus Christ to our, our neighbors and family and friends. And those we meet and those who even just hear of us, we just pray for your glory. We pray that we would declare the truth of Jesus Christ to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.